Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Dorothy Can Hamilton, and we are sitting at the International Culinary Center. And today, my guest is Charles Fan, the really much lauded chef from San Francisco. You probably know him from the Slanted Door because he was awarded in 2004 the Best Chef of the Pacific by the James Beard Foundation. He also was in, uh, inducted into the Who's Who of Food and Beverage. Um, in the at the James Beard Foundation in 2011, but out in San Francisco, he is really, really considered a favored son. In 2010, he got the San Francisco Museum and Historical Society Standing Ovations Award. He got the 2010 Ivy Awards. He in 2005 he got the Anti Defamation League Achievement Award. We've got to talk about that. In 2009, the co-chair of the Vietnamese American National Gala the fifth anniversary. Um, He's in New York doing the New York Food and Wine Festival, and he's got a beautiful new book, Vietnamese Home Cooking, which I'm just salivating over. I I, I don't even want to sit here and talk to you, Charles. I want to go home and cook. (laughs) But welcome. Welcome to New York. Welcome to the International Culinary Center. I'm sorry we're not at Roberta's today, but I'm happy to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I mean, you are really one of the legendary chefs of San Francisco, and I have um, eaten Slanted Door and the Ferry Building, gorgeous restaurant. I, I think in a lot of ways groundbreaking, very creative, uh, beautiful architecture, everything, but we're going to get into that. Let's, let's uh, delve into your past. Um, tell me, where were you born? Uh, born in Vietnam, a little town called Dalat in the Central Highland. It's about eight-hour drive. From Saigon? Uh, from Saigon. Very slow driving. Um, Wineed Road. Um, left in 75, part of the Vietnamese um, exodus. Oh, how old were uh, you? I was 13. Um, uh, got on a boat and got to the Philippines and Guam. Um, stayed in Guam for about almost two oh, wait, years. Oh, wait, wait, wait. We can't go this far. If you were 13 and <laughs> left in 1975, what were the... the I mean, let's just do the food memory of the war years that you were there. Um, what kind of food were you eating in, in that very tough time? Well, uh, I was born in it, so I, I, you, you know, you just have curfews, and so we, I don't look at it as being tough. Um, I mean, I, I don't like July Fourth, you know, like loud bang noises. That's what, <laughs> that's the only kind of remnants of the war that drives me crazy when I see fireworks. But other than that, um, great food. We didn't travel much. Um, it was hard to travel during the war years. Mm-hmm. So you kind of stay put. Um, but where we come from, 
there are a lot of French restaurants because it's a resort town. Yes. And my mom speaks a little French, and we would go to French restaurant, the street food. Um, you know, back then, Vietnam weren't as global, as open, so all you eat is Vietnamese food. Or French. French. Uh, French. If, if you're going to get stuck somewhere yeah. and only had two cuisines, right. you could do and, worse. And, I mean, and, you and can't the do much better. Yeah, and the Chinese were there, you know, oh. for thousands of years, so yes. it's an influence. But you'll, you'll get the taste of some, let's say, Hue food. And, of course, there's uh, not a whole lot of Northerner at the time. So you were in the central part of Vietnam. Right. And there's a northern cuisine and a southern cuisine yeah, and a central you, cuisine. Tell, tell us a little bit about the, the differences in the cuisines there. And, and well, they're, they're huge. I mean, it takes two hours to go from Saigon to, uh, to Hanoi. So it's equivalent like L.A. to Seattle. So you can imagine. In a plane. Yeah. 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 So you can imagine the type of differences in uh, influence. And obviously, um, Hanoi is closer to China and Yunnan. Like they eat dill and turmeric in the south. You got the delta, the, the river, the Mekong. Um, they're different. And back then, they weren't travel. In the central region, it's considered... Um, for a long time, the capital of Vietnam, all the kings and queens, mm-hmm. uh, emperor, and food. So, so was it a royal cuisine in the central part? Supposedly, yeah. I mean, you don't uh, nowadays in Hue, you you have, you know, definitely you, you see the old tradition, the dresses and so on. But but the street food is really. So what did, what did your mother make? What kind? What are some of your favorite childhood dishes? Well, mom was a busy businesswoman running, you know, she was really, I mean, dad was loading up warehouses, but she's running the cash register at the general store. What, what was had. he, what did he do? Uh, they had a, a general store, like selling dry goods and, oh. you know, yeah. candy, cigarette, coffee, and mm-hmm. start drinking coffee when I, when I was like in fourth grade, I think. <laughs> um, the... Um, and and mostly you would have made and help you go to the market and buy everything fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, but the street food, and it's just always my memory. I remember there's one stall right behind my mom's shop, and it was like crispy noodle, stir fry, uh, crispy noodle with a kind of soggy sauce, and sitting there in the monsoon rain, pounding in this army tent. You can just feel the vibration from the water hitting the tent, and you're just waiting for your turn to get this food. It's just, and and I'm trying to, you know, write down some of that memory in the book. And mm. because for me, like eating a crepe in Vietnam, it, you know, they don't have gas stove, so it's charcoal, so it takes a long time. And mm. and, and you would sit there waiting to your turn to get your crepe. And meanwhile, there's a, you know, wonton vendor filling in the gap and they were like co-marketing <laughs> and, you know you know basically you pay one price but you get the soda guys one guy the the, the wonton guys another guy in the crate which is great to see. so at home did you have people you had cooks yeah. it wasn't your your mother you came from a fairly wealthy family and that had servants so did you ever hang out in the kitchen and learn oh to that's there? all i hang out i mean that's all we do i mean um so it, it's uh, it's it sounds kind of opulent, but it's not really because mom's working yes. know, 16 hours a day. She have a whole crew that goes with her into the store, and they work 14, 16 hours a day. And and sometimes they don't even eat lunch. And 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 I'm living at the warehouse, so I'm not like a block away. Mm. And the cooks will make 
uh, food for everybody. And back in those days where most of these young people work for us, they actually bore with us. And there's a whole floor that they live upstairs. Oh. You know, uh, and and they would go home, see their family once a month of some sort. So everybody mm-hmm. would make food. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they get in the fights. And so they were making their own food. Did no, you? No, no, there's a company. Cook, oh, there was if you a company will. cook that so, made. Like imagine almost like a stagecoach. Like it's not that outward <laughs> right. because it's just like it's just work. And and the men would eat one meal. The women would eat another meal. They don't sit together because there's so many of them, and mm. they were different level. And we would during the day eat with the the women and. We don't eat with the men and all the kids. And I remember my little brother uh, went to the market, got a fish, and they killed it. And they took a plastic fish, throw it in the pot, you know. <laughs> and, and and Larry said, "Oh, he's crying." He said, "The fish is not smiling." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we don't have refrigeration. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no. Um, I think we got our first propane stove was 1973, 74. Mm-hmm. So. You know, you can see the maid slaughtering the chicken. But you, you had those long pieces of charcoal, and they would go in a charcoal. Yeah, they, and, uh, the and was... fuel was very difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, like the kitchen was always black, and there's charcoal, and and you 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 know you start a fire. You don't turn on. Did it knob. flavor the food? The charcoal? Uh, yeah, 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 and it it's it's. So did it change when you went to propane? Um, no, no. I think you know they still grill with charcoal, yeah. and I think boiling water and get, it makes it a little easier. Yeah. But it's amazing thing is, just like people don't really use refrigeration. Mm. The whole connection of food, and you go to uh, today, um, just six months ago, in the market, and there's no refrigeration with the meat. It's just killed that day, get used up that day. There's no styrofoam. There's no expiration date. So. And and people don't realize that they see the wet market and say they think it's gross, but you smell it. You don't smell rotten food. Right. The fish is just that day, and there's no preservatives. There's no freezer. Well, the greener we get, the less packaging we want. We, have right. you heard in Germany now they're they're peeling bananas and putting them in plastic so people don't have to peel? I mean, it's crazy. But anyway, let's get back. So. Then you 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 left uh, yeah on a on a on boat, a boat uh, got to Guam. How long were you on the boat? Uh, I was in the ocean for about you know three two and a half months three months. How many people were on the boat? About five hundred. Then moved. Well, w- the first one was the rough one. We were like bopping around about seven days. It's supposed to because be because you didn't know where you were going. Yeah. Well, the guy said he knew what he was doing, but he yeah. doesn't. And you know, most of these guys never. It just go up and down the coast of Vietnam. Once they get interna- international water, they they lost their navigation. Then we were picked up by a Malaysian patrol boat. Uh-huh. Then we end up just in the Singapore Harbor, and no one wanted to take these refugees. Yeah. And there's three hundred thousand. How were you eating on the boat? And was there enough food? Well, the first round, seven day, was was on rationing. Um, you you know you have a little ball of rice and a cup of water. Then once we got to Singapore, they just bring. Um, one of my favorite things is just these sardine tomato sauce and these canned. And some of my friends are just freaks out and they won't eat it. For me, every now and then I, I would just sneak it in and bring it, you know, heat it up with some hot rice and soy sauce. It's my favorite thing. And spam. And spam. That's yeah, what yeah. they gave you on the. Yeah, on and for me, that was just, just like, it's just great memory. And yeah. I, I, but some people are. I know a few friends that come from the same boat, and he's just like, I'm not touching that stuff. I hate that stuff so bad. Because we're eating that, like, day in, day out. Uh. Got to Guam. 
Um, wow, Guam is far away from yeah, Singapore. Yeah, I mean, it's out yeah, in the ocean there. Yeah. Right? So we got to Guam, 300,000. At the time, you can get on the plane. They'll send you to the other camp in the States. Oh, they sent you by plane. Well, once you got to Guam, yeah. we got from Singapore to Guam was on a ship. The, the Singapore, Singapore to Guam, yeah, yeah. that's a long trip. Yeah, they don't want you to, they don't want to take anybody. So no. what happened, they gather all the little boat and put it on a big ship with better navigation. And hopefully, and uh-huh. they just send you through um, to Guam. It was a giant refugee camp, 300,000. Um, and they start uh, putting the refugee all across the United States, like Camp Pendleton and upstate New York, and that's why you know Minnesota. In fact, you watch. So that's where you you wound up. Well, we chose not to go. You can get on a plane or stay. That uh-huh. that's the only choice you have. Oh. Well, actually, in Guam, in Singapore, you have a choice to go back to Vietnam, uh, in uh, go to Taiwan, United States, and and once you get to Guam, you can either go to the States or stay in Guam. I see. So and mom thought, if we're going to be homeless, we're going to be somewhere warm. Yes. Not Minnesota. Nothing against Minnesota. No. But, but um, so mom was just, you know, didn't, you know, you, what do you, you, know, you don't yeah. have money, you don't speak the language. And the whole idea of the government giving you money, it's just, yeah, it, yeah. that doesn't exist before. So right. Anyway, we, we stay in Guam, and... Guam the, is quite tropical, right? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. sort of like Hawaii, not as mm-hmm. developed. Um, it's a coral reef island. And so we got to San Francisco. Well, we stay in Guam for about two years. Then we got a sp- family sponsors out of the, the uh, refugee camp. And we, my mom and my dad worked for them, and... My dad was a janitor for an office building. Mom was being a housemaid. That must have been so difficult after everything they did. I know, I know. My dad did it twice. He was wealthy in China. He left that. He lost all that, and now it's second time again. Oh. And you know, when he passed away about seven years ago, and I, I he was half, like I was half his age, and I'm trying to imagine like forty something to be in the middle of the ocean with six kids. It's just amazing to yeah. think through how these guys you, know, you come he, from good stuff yeah <laughs> survivors um, <laughs> so we um, we came we have friends in San Francisco and we wrote to them and we promised the sponsor we stayed in a year we stayed a little bit more than a year came to San Francisco they wrote letter back then they weren't phone or email and they said this beautiful apartment we got here it was a tenderloin we got two studio for 11 people oh my in the tenderloin Oh, and <laughs> which is not the great neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it For was people listening elsewhere. Yeah, the uh, Tenderloin's not the best neighborhood. I remember Singapore. coming here at four in the morning and with bright light and people out in the street and the ladies out in the street. The ladies I, of the night. Yes, uh, it was just I was just yeah. shocked. You know, Guam was you know get dark after nine. We stay there. It was kind of hilarious. Dad knew this was not good. Mm. And within two months, the building manager set the building on fire. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah, we we just got it. Actually, I I forgot to tell you, when we were in Guam, you know, we got situated in this little beautiful stilt house on the beach and, you know, wonderful setting. Biggest typhoon came and blew the house away. And then we're back out in the street again. Oh, no. We got onto the Red Cross line. They were, you know, and we weren't as fast. We were kind of slow and getting free clothing. 
and and you can get the voucher and we got there and they only have size 46 and uh, 36 mom would buy them and try to shrink them down it was just hilarious and um and we got to san francisco and uh, um, so we left the tenderloin and he got a place in chinatown and he got a job with an english pub and this is where my restaurant story sort of comes in is he, he was a janitor there in 1977. In 1978, I got a job busing table. And I remember going there, like, I never knew how to carry a plate. I used to, like, hug all the plate against my chest. And um, with an uh, English gentleman, English pub, right by Chinatown. And he taught me how to service. And um, so from 78 to 84, I worked all the restaurant, like, nightclub, and I, I you know, work two or three nights a week. And so I was you started a, as a waiter? Did busser, busser, busser. Yeah, back then, then you have to be ruffle and captain in yes. the 80s. Right. Um, so I was in nightclub and I was not, I was exposed to all this food. You know, like high school, I buy Calistoga. Kids would make fun of me who, like, they said, this is a guy that buy water. <laughs> you know, uh, I remember, you know, having. What was your first thought? What was your first impression of American food when you landed? Oh, I love it. You know, in fact, you know, I, I, I always liked cooking. Mom was working all the time, so I start cooking dinner at 8th grade, ninth grade. I come home, I make meals. For, what kind of meals were you making back you know, then? First Chinese, you know. Mm-hmm. Then then I start, you know, I remember watching Jack Pepin and, and learning how to cut an onion. And today, I still think of him every time I cut an onion. And, and I remember, you know, watching, you know, making puff pastry. Um, and, and that's, you know, I watched his show the most. Um, and I always like, you know, back then KQED was really the rage of cooking show. And the, Great cooking show. Yeah. Um, and I always follow all the cooking show. So, so, but you, you actually went to University of Wisconsin? Mm-mm. No. Uh, UC Berkeley. Oh, UC Berkeley. Yeah, oh, I okay. Went, I got I went, this wrong. I, I went to... I'm yeah, Mission High. Um, I really want to be a potter, so I was throwing pot and and just not like a normal kid because I was two years older. Also, my mom had fixed my age, so so I was two years older than most kids. Oh, I see. They fix the age in Vietnam, so I don't go into the, to the military. Uh-huh. Um, I want to be an artist, and that's uh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. my dad was just not having it, so I, uh, you being an artist. Yeah, he so, wanted you to be a businessman. Yeah. <laughs> engineer doctor Dark, yeah. you know my mom worked for a hospital so um in fact you know got an invitation to apply to cooper union and all this great school wow. and i had passed it up and i ended up settling with uc berkeley to do architecture and i told him like oh yeah it's an architect so supposedly you know it's legitimate perfect. right yeah. so i went to school studying architecture and by then i was really you know, exposed because even, you had an artistic passion, and architecture yeah. was sort of a compromise with your right, father, right. as opposed to you just loving architecture. Yeah, yeah. And, and it turns out be really a great move because I think uh, my first class would would giants uh, Joe Eschrick of the Bay Area architect, really? and, and he was you know he decided to take a freshman class that year. Now, last year he did it. It really changed my way of looking at the world and. And I was just thinking about architect in a fancy suit and fancy marble and glass. And this guy was just in Birkenstock and humble. And he's talking about building something beautiful with simple material. It's all about scale and light. 
it was just a lecture class. You just, he just almost like this old disciple. You just hang around and listen to him. There's no homework. It was amazing. Twice a week, and he would take around the campus and go up to some of the Maybach home or the Green Green Brothers and sit and talk about space. And, and it really changed my view towards a lot of things and, and how I uh, approach, you know, um, um, a solving problem because I, I was applying to Cal Poly and everybody says you know it's a great architecture school but they're focused on you know very technical stuff and Berkeley is a lot of theory it's not good and but we chose Berkeley and I think it was just me you know really helped me see and and I did not know I want to be a cook and so during those years in Berkeley um, um, I was working in the restaurant and I started seeing this idea of building a place, a modern space with design and sensibility about Vietnamese food. Okay, we're going to take a break here, which I don't want to. This is so fascinating. But we're going to take a break and we'll be back in a minute. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. We support Heritage Radio Network because all you folks listening are so genuine, so dedicated to serious food, so much a part of what this country needs to strive to become. People like you are few and far between, and it's obvious to us at Fairway that we've got to stick together. Our desire is that the word gets out about Heritage Radio Network in its support for serious food, foodstuffs that offer memorability and, and timelessness, authenticity and, and rarefied quality. This country grew too fast to have established any degree of a heritage. Europe had centuries to develop one. America has not. Heritage Radio Network serves to hasten the evolution of a society that often appears coarse and uninterested. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. So we're back. Welcome. You're listening to Chef Story, and today's guest is Charles Fan of the Slanted Door in San Francisco. And we're hearing right now about his um, leaving uh, Berkeley and the influence of architecture school and how it comes together with your food. Well, also Berkeley at the time, um, I was kind of exposed to like um, the Monterey Market and the Berkeley Bowls. You know, Alice Water, you know, Chez Panisse, I, I couldn't afford, you know, at Did the you time. ever go there? When you were not, there? not when I was in school. I mean, it was just, it was just way beyond my, yeah, <laughs> my budget. <laughs> um, but I was, I was living in a co-op and I didn't realize this. I ended up like cooking for um, five guys in my dorm room at a, at a co-op. You know, we have kitchen, we cook dinner, but I did a separate meal, five course meal. So I was around... Um, uh, the nouveau cuisine and all these um, the continental cuisine, the English restaurant. I, I worked for a guy named Sam Duvall, who had a Creole sort of nineteen twenty, always, but it was kind of modern yeah. at the time. It was just really Cafe Royale was really hot in the eighties in San Francisco and. Mm. Um, so I was in the food scene, um, just just from the peripheral mm-hmm. of serving, and I remember drinking cappuccino and latte, in, you know, before Starbucks, literally. And and there's a place right by my high school, just mm-hmm. dessert, and they would make fresh croissant. I would ride my bike there, like way before class, and mm-hmm. you know, have coffee and croissant. New York Time, like in tenth grade, 
you know, it was just really odd, you know. I was really into food, like to eat. And well, you know, San Francisco, just just being there yeah. gives you that kind of exposure. Yeah, and I wasn't really thinking about cooking as a career. Uh, the whole chef thing was n never entered my mind. But during the school and, and subsequent years, and I, I, after, well, third year in Berkeley, I came out to New York and worked for a firm out here, um, living in, you know, 129th and Claremont. Really? Yeah. It's, so you did that for architecture? You were working yeah, in architecture? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I, I went into this whole protest, uh, community organizing, try to pro protest they have fee height and I got into the whole Berkeley thing then I had to drop out of school that year because I didn't go to my classes because I boycotted <laughs> and so I, I finished that and we had the biggest protest and uh, and then I to kill the rest of the year I moved out here um, in the mid 80s why why New York oh everybody gotta come to New York New York is it all right I'm a New York <laughs> you know New York um, and you know the subway was you know, rough. It was rough back in the it mid. It was 80s. all graffitied. Yeah, they still hadn't got the new train deadlish. yet. Yeah, <laughs> a new train yet. It used to have a lot of fire garbage down the train track. Yeah, 129th in um, Claremont is not a great neighborhood either. <laughs> so. Well, it was. Uh, I went to the Columbia, Columbia Housing, got some yeah. apartment up there. Um, then went back home uh, after a year. Mom had a sewing business, and I took over. I had to go back and help, and I didn't finish school. Oh. Ran the garment business started a clothing store really? started designing clothes it was just anything I can get my hand on design like even yeah. though I'm not really into clothes but but it is what it is and how old are you at this stage uh 20 something 24 25. all right so the food thing is just it just I, I just spend a lot of money in eating food yeah. um, so got the garment business grew that really big then then lost it all went bankrupt and, you know it was savings and loans, you know, we had a lot of contract. Oh, out. in the 90s? Yeah, yeah. late, late 80s. And 90s, people, with the savings and loans. Yeah, people bottle, didn't yeah. pay us, and people yeah. filed Chapter 11. Yeah. And a couple of years later, we are out. And, um, so that's when I really, uh, I, I could have just, and then I start traveling, go back to Vietnam in 1992 for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, and 92, then I was going to travel, and um, but... I decided to stay and and didn't want to move to Hong Kong and you stayed in Vietnam, San Francisco. Sam, oh, yeah. okay. Wait, so, so I didn't. Traveling I, I traveling. Vietnam, I was going to get a okay. job in Hong Kong. You know, looked up some alumni, Berkeley alumni architecture firm. Mm -hmm. It was just you know, it was really cool. Nineteen ninety two, going back to Asia and like everybody's my height. You know, <laughs> there's no top people there, and it's I was like, wow, man, this is this could be cool. Yeah. Uh, and the food was just amazing and. But I didn't want to leave my family, so I decided to just get a job, and, mm. and I got a job selling software. <laughs> in, in San Francisco? Yeah, and selling into post houses, and, and you know, this is right, in the, this is before the internet, before, you know, and it was just Unix um, graphic system I was selling, and we were dealing with emails and with Eudora. Charles, you have done a lot of living <laughs> before you even, I've never met a chef that had such a background. So, wow, so how long were you doing that? Two years, I was running around, you know, selling to like post houses, trying to get ABC to buy this little piece of software to make transition, or Broadway video, and I mean, coming into town, or or giving a you know a demo at the NBA uh, national broadcast convention, <laughs> uh, you know, um, great time, just um, but 
but it was just I that was just a little time like I didn't want to own any business because it was really stressful doing the sewing year but yeah. I always had this idea in my head that this restaurant thing and I think I, literally 10 or 15 years that I, I see this picture of this modern design place but serving you know sort of Japanese Vietnamese food like mm-hmm. six seven item it mm-hmm. was always in my head and, you know, but at the same time, I didn't bother me that I never cooked my life like professionally, and um, so the company that I work for, the software, when you know, we went got some raised some venture money, then we went bankrupt, and and you know, Internet Explorer wouldn't even exist yet. This is like Netscape, right? Yeah. And, and um, then I was gonna again start traveling, and I was gonna work for a company that sells uh, SGI. SGI was this big computer for company that does graphic and they were really hot and was going to get a job there and move, do international sale. But, but how I, did you make the jump to restaurants? Well, at, at that time I was 30-something already, 33, and, and I said, yeah, I better not mess around anymore. I should do this something I've been in my head. Um, and I got about 20 grand and I said, oh, I'm going to open a restaurant. It's time, you know, and so it's been long enough. It was two years since I had my last business, and I start looking around. I'm unemployed for about eight months. I would ride. My, I was living on a loft in downtown Oakland, and I would ride my bike and have like three-hour coffee in Berkeley, and go by Market Hall and think about what I want to cook that night. And I had ten people over that night and having a party. Then we were going to do a little small place in the Tenderloin, um, and I, I didn't have a lot of money, $20,000, not much money, <laughs> to open a restaurant. Not at all, especially in San Francisco. Yeah. And eight months of trying, looking at Wanna Add, trying to buy businesses, and finally found the space on Valencia Street. And it was just a box, and it wasn't even a restaurant. I was crazy enough to just dive in, not knowing how much money I got. And Anyway, I, I got some money finally I took everybody's money in the family you know whatever cash they had for the working for, capital yes once it was opened yeah, yeah. so so I think we end up with $60,000 total still yeah. that is nothing to open yeah. a restaurant even yeah. in the 90s in San yeah. Francisco oh. so we opened uh, with credit card and I think by the time and it took me a year uh, to like I didn't have enough money to buy tile I would do all the work myself and I but but I saw the space, and the rent was cheap. And I promised... And you brought your architectural yeah, eye? Yeah. So I, I went. I remember making a deal with the landlord. I said, look, here, here's some deposit. If, if I can't get my permit, you can keep it. And and I just have a sense of business and locking. I'm like, everybody's looking at this space. And, and I just stole it underneath everybody else. And my rent was 2000 bucks a month. And I didn't know how to build it, you know. So, But, but I just saw one thing at a time. We built it. We opened a year later. That year, that's when I met my wife and we got married. Um, and she, you know, we opened in November. She moved back from Thailand in December. And by then, I think it was like $140,000 we spent, you know. The rest came from credit card. It was like 20, 30 credit card. Um, wow. And that was the first year. And the goal was to sell 200 bucks a day to make ends meet. I was living with my mom. I didn't have rent. <laughs> so $200 a day, gross. That was the goal. Yeah. And so what, what happened in the first year? How much were you making? I don't know. We really, 
open in November and Bauer review us back then a day in March, you know, um, then just nonstop. Ever After since. that. So finally, and finally, a well, little good luck enters your family yeah. that you don't have to struggle. Yeah. I am so happy. It's redemption. Well, it, it, you know, but at the time it was just me and my wife and and my brother after Bauer what was the business before and what was the business after the San Fran- Michael Bauer is the restaurant critic for the San Francisco Chronicle and it can change a life right yeah but we were getting like you know I, I, I remember putting this this photograph of noodle steaming and it says coming soon at Modern Vietnamese Restaurant the slant door everybody thought it was some Bollywood movie <laughs> Uh, and it has that Bollywood movie look. So people were like, you know, I remember we set the date and and tried to open. I only got six items. I couldn't even get six of them out. Like, mm-hmm. it was nine. I think I got about four of them out. Like, I had to postpone another week because I don't know how to cook it. <laughs> Everything was just so backed up. We was, I had a test run. And, um, and people's, you know, it was just... The timing was just perfect. It was just this neighborhood was like a little diamond in the rough. Then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, like this dark street, all of a sudden you got this modern, hip-looking loft space, the original location. Mm-hmm. And we did it How really... How did you come up with the name? Um, I, I didn't want it for people to stereotype the restaurant because I know that if I say Vietnamese and people are going to want you know free tea and, and I want to serve you know European wine, I want to serve European dessert... You know, so and I want to have this kind of hip thing to it. Mm. Um, a friend thought the door was slammed, but the whole wall was slanted. It was a nineteen fifty building. The whole wall was slanted. Yeah, the whole facade was canted. You know, oh, it was not I parallel. See. I see. Um, Could you know, the ordinary person see that, or was that your architectural eye? <laughs> no, uh, nobody sees that. And, yeah. and 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 at first it was kind of edgy, a little race kind of connotation. Mm. But I was like. Uh, well, since I'm Asian, I can do that. <laughs> and, and actually, I, in the beginning, I got a lot of grief from some Asian group. It's like, you're making fun of us. And I was like, hey. You got the anti-defamation award, so you obviously <laughs> overcame that. Um, yeah. And um, a year into it, we're pretty much, um, you know, following the sort of Alice me- method of six simple thing buying. A year into it, I pretty much switched to mostly the organic. Alice method? Alice Water. Oh, Alice yeah. Water. I thought yeah. maybe in Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Alice Water's method of what? Sustainable, organic okay. food, but not a lot of item. Okay, six items, you said? Her, yes, yeah, ten. Is that know. what she says? Six, ten? I don't remember what she said, said but that wasn't her menu, menu. Oh, back I then, see. so I was copying her thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so you were... So was sustainability and organic something on your radar, or was it just naturally what you did? Well... The problem is, like, I know what good food is. Like, yeah. I eaten good chicken, and I, I was just getting sick of the food that I buy in the commodity market. Right. So the more I dig, the more I need to go to the organic route and mm-hmm. got to go look for farmers. Did you farm. work with farmers? Yeah. Because the ingredients, were they readily available for well, you to do your Vietnamese? So? Yeah, because, well, I was, like, really cheap, and, like, I would go to the market myself in the morning, mm-hmm. um, and... and, and and try to buy half case of beans and I would look at it I won't pay for it and they wanted me to fill out form I don't fill out form I want to pay cash only some of these bigger companies like you don't have an account we're not going to sell it to you so I was buying off like retail markets 
you know, and I, I was so anal back then. I would only buy enough beans for one day. Like because green beans. Because you didn't have the money or because you believed in buying stuff every day? I believed in buying stuff every day, like Vietnam. Yeah. And I was a little crazy. I, I wouldn't even prep anything a day ahead because I didn't have any kitchen experience. Like, I won't pre-cook my chicken like a lot of some Chinese restaurant. Uh -huh. Like, for me, you just cook like you cook at home. Right. And How many people were in your kitchen at that time? Two. Just you? me and my and one more lady, my aunt. Your that was aunt. it. Oh, yeah. Wow, no wonder the food was so fabulous. I didn't have it back then. But and that's my brother was waiting wants. table. You know. Your brother was waiting the table. Yeah, and it was... How many seats? It was like... It was so, well, like ninety seed, but we weren't very busy, you know. In the beginning. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't even have a dishwasher. I would just leave a pie on. I wash it twice a week. I mean, twice a, day, a you know, night, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, we're going to have to take another break here, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about how the empire. Grew. You're listening to Chef's Story. I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today my guest is Charles Fan of the Slanted Door in San Francisco. Um, we've just been having a wonderful time talking about uh, this early days of the Slanted Door. Well, it's an amazing story. How did the empire grow? What was the growth like after that, and what made you grow bigger? Well, we just got busier and busier, crazy. Like Friday night, we do. Four turns, and we don't. With ninety seats. Yeah, four turns, uh, wine, beer, and by then, you know, I had brought in people to help me, like well, our wine director. Like I didn't know wine. I don't know yeah. wine at all. Like I don't yeah. didn't have time, and we were really setting some new ground. Like Mark Allen Bogan, first six months, we started doing all riesling, and no one was doing riesling, and and it was a hundred percent riesling, you know, a German Austrian list. And it was small, single page. Uh, and we were like, there were a lot of new ground. Like we were serving expensive Chinese tea at like $180 a pound oolong that was serving at $5 a pot. Now, mind you, in 1994, 95, the Ritz-Carlton only charges $2 a pot. And most teas are like 50 cents, like Lipton, right? Mm -hmm. And here I am, my spring roll was four fifty for the appetizer and my tea was $5. Because the math just yes. doesn't work at 180. Right. I mean, this is. Did people order it? At first, they didn't. I and mean, the people, some of them are like, I get free tea. But once you start ordering, they see how amazing it is. Mm. You get multiple brew. Mm. Um, and it was really. And it, I just, like, three years prior to that, I just discovered all these amazing tea. You know, this is time just for the first time. Uh, Roy Fong from Pure Tea Court and, and David Hoffman from Silk Road. They were just starting to import because China was not open at the time. And oh. all of a sudden you get these stuff that costs cost more than the stuff you smoked, you know. <laughs> so, I don't know how much smoke you took cost, but I think it's cost a lot. I'm $180 a pound for a tea is just a lot. You know? So you, you actually discovered those in San Francisco through these importers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So did you have a, a sort of a tea sommelier? Uh, no, just me. And, mm -hmm. and we would, you know, really know about, you know, how many steeping time, what kind of pot, you know, keeping, you know, we would rinse your cup hot before we bring it to you. Mm. Um, so tell me how, you know, we have a lot of chefs out there. How do you say, what? It, how do you distinguish your food? in your restaurants compared to other chefs? 
Asian chefs, not necessarily any. Well, what, what, what's distinguishing about the my, my dear, my my method is really about bringing a little piece of Vietnam, a little history and culture to you. So I don't try to change it, um, but I do try to make it good. So if I learn a dish in Ho Chi Minh City, like this beef called Shaking Beef, I remember having it in 1992, and, and I changed a little bit using filet instead of flank steak. I cut a little bit bigger and make it medium rare because I know most folks here are... I don't like well done beef, um, mm-hmm. but but also the way we serve the food is family style. We we don't like to have you know like an eighty all plated stuff. Mm-hmm. We're using you know beautiful ceramic. First year we we went to Thailand, Chiang Mai, and have all the ceramic made. And mm-hmm. this is not even pressed; these are thrown, mm-hmm. uh, thrown solid on platter from from Chiang Mai. Um, design was very important, you know. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have money to do a lot of things, but I spent like $140 for the chair because that was really... Mm-hmm. And I would make the tabletop out of plywood and mm-hmm. cut it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so where we can really um, push the envelope and design both food. But but the... But you, you also introduced wine in these teas. So you were... You were taking a, a, a different kind. Well, the accoutrement's all there in mm-hmm. terms of the service, the wine glass, mm-hmm. you know, because I come from fine dining. So mm-hmm. so I was doing, but the food, I did not follow the food that I learned, which is mm-hmm. all plated. Like I hated the mashed potato touching my fish. You know, I mm-hmm. thought just like, like I, I don't even like to eat that way. And mm-hmm. people compose these plates. It drives me nuts. And I like flavor that's just, you know, in parts. And I eat through the, each dishes. And I don't like them mingle together. I mean, mm-hmm. the only time I ever let food touch each other is Thanksgiving. You know, the cranberry and the... <laughs> you know, but that's designed to be touching each other. But not when you do a banquet or Chinese banquet, mm-hmm. when you have a fish and you shouldn't have your meat on the same plate. Right. Um, we were changing, and the service style is very different. Um it allow us to really pump through the volume. Um, crazy little tiny restaurant, that $140,000 restaurant, by the seven year, we did $3.9 million. Wow. It was just un- crazy. I mean, we were like selling $10 entree. I mean, it was a lot of volume. We were like, it was so crammed, and like literally you don't even move in the kitchen. You just turn around and pass the dish down. And... Um, and by so, then, I had trained, you know, my dishwasher now is my walk guy. And it was just this whole family of people um, working like crazy. Um, so then how did you move to a bigger place? Why did you move? Well, we couldn't stay there. The lease is up. The family squabbling, the landlord family. And again, I was just like a refugee. It's just like mm-hmm. your place is burned out again. Like, yeah. I can't stay there. Yeah. And now we have, you know... A three or four million dollars restaurant, yeah. and we can't stay. Yeah. And and I say, well, then they end up. I convince them to sell the building. I don't even know how I did that. I don't even know how I got the loan. It was just crazy. And I bought the building. I was I was I was building a house in Napa. I was laying some tile. I did it. I do a lot of stuff myself. Laying mosaic tile. And this bank just came and said, oh, we're not giving you a loan because we decided to shut down. And, and, and 
they say we're shutting down and your loan is no longer working and it's like it's just 10 more days and now the to land- buy the building yeah there's closing in 10 days oh my now the landlord said they don't want to sell now after they realized that it was all that squabbling mm. now they want to take it back and and I had to find money in 10 days wow and it was crazy. I, I literally asked my customer to loan me IOU cash. I, I got $2 million worth of cash. From your customers? Uh-huh. Oh, Charles, you're amazing. It was just, just nutty, you know? It was nutty. I couldn't get a bank loan in 10 days. There's no way. And So they became your angel investors? No, they're not even an investor. There's no investor. Just, just an IOU. IOU. I'll pay you back in 60 days. That was it. 60 days? Yeah. Whoa. They wouldn't even paper. Well, wow. I know I can get the loan once oh, I have time. Oh, in 60 days. Because yeah. I already got yeah, one yeah. loan. But, but boy, that was trusting. How many How many people launch them in? Oh, I can't remember. I mean, I have one. More than five? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have one big one. Yeah. Uh, I have one big one, but like it could be $20,000 from one, 100000 another. It was just nutty. It was just nutty. Fabulous. But but. What a story. I, but I don't, you know, when you're back against the wall yeah. and when you got nothing else to lose, yeah. you just do what you can, you know. Yeah. And I remember, my, so my mosaic tile's crooked because when <laughs> I got that phone call, I was so angry. I left the mosaic tile and it got stuck. So so every time I go in that bathroom, it reminded me that loan that, you know. And um, we just, you know, take one problem at a time. Right. Then we moved to, um, uh, then we had to move out because the building needs to be, fix and all this problem and I was like okay let's just solve one thing at a time we found you know this restaurant just went out of business or dot-com bus we moved to Brandon Street it was not never planned we moved to Brandon Street and we just our sales just jump up again it was just another new challenge we had cocktail night introduced to the menu so I go around I ask people in the industry come and help me make cocktail you know and um, um, and that's when Thad at Bar Coca-Cola and these guys started working for me. They were working at Fairlawn. Eric Atkin, now my bar director, and they're all friends. And the guy came out of Yale. But, you know, these kind of lost soul that came graduated from these big Ivy League schools running around bartending. Um, and they, we got there and, all right, all right, maybe we'll stay here. We do a, a, something else at the you know, Valencia Street. So the plans always change. Yeah. A year, two years into it, we thought I had a deal. Something happened, came in, the deal collapsed again oh. on Brandon Street. We were going to stay there. Yeah. And nobody moves restaurant three no, times. No, no. Crazy. So, four days later, I was in my shower and I'm like, I'm going to go for it. At the time, Ferry Building, I was going to do a little noodle shop. They've been tired. No one wanted to take the space. They never asked me to do big space. You know, they asked the big boys, like, Michael Deller and Pat Coletto, all the yeah. big restaurateurs. Me, it's like I'm the little guy. Yeah. And finally, I went over there and I said, "I want, I want this whole corner." And you got 48 hours to come back to me and say yes to this list of thing I want. And they said, "Okay." And um, evidently, I, I find out that a big firm in Chicago owned the building. Who's this guy? Like, what? I want to do everything in four days? And I couldn't deal with another day because. The other deal took me six months and it collapsed, you know. So we did it in three days, not not exactly two days, but wow. so Ferry Building was born, and I had no idea how I'm going to pay for all that stuff. It was just the same thing. And you go just, back to your customer. <laughs> I did, I did. I go back to the customer again. Um, 
and we actually don't have investor at Sandor. It's just all piecemeal together, just friends and family. And how alone. many years have you been there now? Uh, ten now. Okay, we have just blown through the program, <laughs> and it's been fantastic. Um, I have to ask you to come back and do part two because I know you have um, so so many ideas and a lot of other things to talk about. So. Can we call this part one of Charles Fan on Chef's Story? And when I'm in San Francisco, I'll come and visit you. Sounds and great. And we can finish part two. I just want to. I just want to make a point that there's this new book, Vietnamese Home Cooking by Charles Fan, that you have to go out and buy because it really not only gives you his rest, re- recipes, and I saw shaking beef in there, but he also goes into um, the equipment, the, the history, the really puts it in context. It's, it's a great and it's beautifully photographed. I wish you luck on it, and I see you soon, Charles. Thanks for coming today. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.